Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Next week, we are going to uh, do a conclusion. Michael and I will come in and we're going to wrap up this uh, series we've been doing, this study. And so the focus of next week will be, we're going to review all the theology we've learned from Genesis 1 through 11. I'm going to talk to you about what we're to know about God from this. And then Michael's going to come in and talk about how that affects us and changes us. So what is the theology we've learned and what difference does it make? And so it would be like a study review for the final exam, but relax, there's no final exam. Final exam is eat turkey and have fun. But we're going to conclude our study next uh, Wednesday night. Michael and I will be in here. We're going to have a Q&A at the end of it. So if there are any lingering questions you have or reactions to that, uh, we've gotten really good feedback on that. I hope that's not boring to you, but you've responded well to it. And so it's been part of the plan to have those three Q&As. And uh, then we go. Let's review so we know where we've been. So tonight we know how to conclude in Genesis 11 if you want to open your Bibles to that. Some of the text is written in your notes. But if you want your Bibles open in front of you, there's your desk. You're welcome. Um, We're going to begin. We started our uh, entire study in chapter one looking at what does the Bible teach us about God? Creator, his preeminence. He does what he does because he wants to, not because he has to. Remember we talked about the fact God did not create us because he needed something to do. He needed us to love him. God needs absolutely nothing from us, which is why worship is a joy to him, but it's not a necessity. It may answer the question for many of us, why doesn't God make us obey? Because he doesn't need us to, to be fulfilled. He wants us to respond to the same love by which he created every one of us. Then we talked about Jesus. And as I stated in week two, It's a bit of a stretch to say Jesus can be found in Genesis 1 through 11 with the exception of 3.15 where the promise is made that one will come that will defeat the serpent. But I tried to show you the shadows of Jesus throughout those texts in creation and how he's present. Then we talked about mankind, who we are, what difference it makes, uh, what we're here for, why he created us. Then we talked about sin. How did sin come into it? What is it by definition? Why do we respond to it? Why is it still attractive to us? Uh, Then we talked about judgment. And why does God judge? What right does God have to judge? What right do we have to respond to that? Do we have any right to push against it? And then we talked about salvation, knowing in the ark and how God has provided salvation and that you can argue with God about the way he chooses to save you or you can get on the boat. People that got on the boat could argue all they wanted because they were saved. People that don't get on the boat can argue all they want, they're going to drown. Salvation is by God's choice. He doesn't have to save us. He's not obligated to save us, but he proves his faithfulness to us by offering us a means to escape ourselves. And then John came in and he talked about God's covenant. And I thought it was pretty fascinating. I was, sitting, I was on an airplane flying back from Japan and I downloaded the, the lesson and it was quite enjoyable. We had an 11 and a half hour flight, so... That only took four of it. It was awesome. I just sat there and listened to it over and over and how he described what the sin was with Noah, which I found fascinating. I'd 
Never heard anybody go into such detail on that, and I thought that was really insightful. So I appreciate John's time, and then Michael was here last week, and and he kind of tied some uh, bows together on this and uh, gave us some answers, some questions you were asking. In fact, when I saw him Monday, I said, how'd Wednesday go? I'd listen to it, and I said, how'd Wednesday go? He he said, that was fun. We got to do that again. So I said, we will. And uh, so he'll be back for that. When we look at worldview, which is what I've been trying to create in this class, and a reminder that Michael will, will tell you about it again next week, but our class in January, which will take place in the, in the worship center, will be on Genesis 12 through 50. It'll complete the book of Genesis. So I really encourage you, if you've gotten things out of this come uh, next semester, Michael will be teaching, I'll be supplementing like he supplemented for me, and we'll be looking at the rest of the book of Genesis. How does it lived out? How are these principles lived out in the stories of the imperfect people who make up the book of Genesis? And so we'll head that direction. But we've been talking about worldview, and uh, I found some research that I found was fascinating. It says, in our world, people live with many different views of the world they live in. Some live as, this, as if this is all there is. You can probably name someone, and if you can't think of someone, think of yourself before you met Jesus. And you probably lived an existence that was like that, wasn't it? I'm just going to take all the flavor I can get out of this world. I'm going to live it to the best I can. I'm going to own whatever I want and do whatever I want and get as many experiences. And at the end of the day, I die, I die. There are a lot of people in our world that are living that way. Some live with the sense that there's something spiritual out there, but I'm not sure what it is and I'm not sure I can connect with it which I think is the majority of the people we know in life, are not the live, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die. Most people are in this, there's something out there, and if I'm a good enough person, what will happen? That something will take care of me. Yet we know, as Christians, that we believe there is definitely something out there, and we couldn't get to him, so what did he do? Let's celebrate Christmas, right? He came to us. And you'll notice even tonight in Genesis chapter 11, there's a key phrase that I'm going to have a little bit of fun with. It won't make you happy, but it sure makes me happy. It says, when they were building this tower, that God came down. Which is rather ironic when you're building a tower to get to him, that he's got to come down to figure out what you're doing. It kind of puts us in our place, doesn't it? So when we look at this whole thing, we're talking about, we believe that there's a spiritual presence that guides this world And he had to come to us because we couldn't get to him. And in that context, I think we can uh, kind of uh, proceed. So what had happened? There was a flood. God had warned. Noah built the ark. Noah invited others into the ark, and they all rejected it, and they drowned. Noah comes out of the ark, and God gives him a commission. What was the commission that Noah received that Adam also received? Pardon? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's different. Dan's uh, given me the right answer because Adam was told, be fruitful and multiply and do the job I gave you to do, which was be my representative here on earth. That's why we have responsibilities that no other created thing has because we're made in God's image. We are supposed to have dominion over creation. We're supposed to use the earth the way it was given to us for the benefit of everybody. And isn't that what any authority is given? And I know I'm going to be, I I say this all the time, Um, uh, my dad made fun of me because he he says, Mark, you keep saying you're not political, then you keep talking politics. I know, it's a good way to protect myself. (laughs) But in light of what happened yesterday, whether your tail wags or whether whether you're in great despair or whether you're just flat numb, 
I'm, glad, I'm grateful for one big thing. It's all over. Amen. And no longer do I have to hear the blah, blah, blah. I can focus on something a little more positive. But in light of all of that, when we talk about this issue that we're facing, uh, what do we do when we take the power and authority God's given us and we use it for purposes that are selfish? And I'm not casting aspersions, please don't get me wrong. But when you talk about politics in America, a bunch of promises are made and then decisions are made that serve who? It depends. God has asked every one of us in whatever authority he's allowed us to have that our priority is to love and honor others more than we love and honor ourselves. And when we do that, we're representative of the light of the kingdom, right? Rather than I'm gonna use my authority I had a disagreement. I've been treated so well at this church. My goodness, I am spoiled rotten. I don't want to tell you that because you're going to stop. I don't want you to stop. I like being here. But I had one gentleman that came up to me and he had a disagreement in me with me about something that was going on in the other room. He wanted something to happen. I said, we're not going to do that this week. And he turned around and these were his words to me. Well, it's your church. I guess you get what you want. And I laughed. I said, if it were my church, the walls would be Cubs blue and we would have highlights of Notre Dame games and there'd be no coffee. So it's not my church. I don't get what I want. Because ultimately, when God gives us authority, he gives us the authority to be a what? A servant of others, not the controlling person over others. So all joking aside, if and when I use the opportunities I've been given to lord over people and to use that for my advantage, then men like David Earhart need to pull me aside and say, it's been a nice run, thanks. But we're been called, we've been called to be servants. So when Noah gets out of the ark, this is all the setup for what takes place in chapters 10 and 11. When Noah gets out of the ark, he's told to do what God asked him to do. And it doesn't take how many generations until people start saying, I'm going to use my authority for whose purpose? For myself. And isn't that the challenge for all of us? How many of you have younger siblings? Good. So for those of you that raise your hand, that may, and if you were a younger sibling, how many of you had an, an older sibling? Good. So probably 90% of the room, unless you, how many of you are only children and will have no idea what this illustration is? My apologies. Okay. But you have kids. So if you've had kids and it still can fit, here's what it is. Were you ever the oldest sibling that was allowed to babysit for the very first time when mom and dad disappeared for a period of time? How did your lordship go? My brother, Steve, my oldest brother was a great lord. Because he let us do fun things. Jiffy Pop, back in my day, was a pretty cool thing. But you had to be really careful with it, because 30 seconds too long and the whole house reeked of fire. But done just perfectly, Jiffy Pop was an amazing thing. Steve would get out the Jiffy Pop, and he was a pro, and we'd each get our own, which was, like, unreal. That was like living with the Clampets. It was amazing. And if you get that illustration, we're all old, okay? My brother Scott wasn't a good lord at all. Scott would make me make him Jiffy Pop and not share it with me. So the first time we left our oldest Alex with Braden, I had no fear that he would be a good Lord because his his job was to make sure while we were gone, Braden didn't die. (laughs) So I said to B when I got home, how'd Alex do? And he goes, it was great. He played with me and he talked with me and I thought he's a good Lord. Lordship is not what we make it in our culture. Lordship is actually stewardship. Do I take the opportunities that God's given me and do I bless other people with that opportunity? So 
whether you love the election or hated the election or you're like me, you're just glad it's over. I think we have an obligation as a church to pray for whoever those leaders are at the local, state, and national level that God get into their world and mess them up so that they serve the best of all people rather than an agenda that they seem commissioned to, right? God gave an agenda to Noah and his people, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, how come every time God gives us a second chance, we require a third? And for some of us, the 98th second chance. And so here's the issue that we'll be talking about. But let's look at Genesis chapter 10. So it seems to be one of these bland genealogies. Now, to an American mind, a genealogy is an annoying thing. Most of the time when we read it, the only thing we're thinking about is, did I say that name right? Because we have no idea. So you just kind of fly. How many of us, when we're reading through the Bible in a year, will get to a genealogy and think, day off? (laughs) We just go, woohoo, yeah, because we have no clue. The genealogies mean something. In fact, we'll talk about it in a couple weeks in the Gospel series when we look at the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, which is a difficult sermon to write because none of us know those people. It's like when my mom shows me the family tree and she wants me to take me back to 1700 Ireland, and I'm like, Mom, I could care very little about this. She smiles. You will one day. And I'm like, nah. (laughs) Genealogies are complicated. I want to tell you what we can see in chapter 10. At first glance, it seems to be just a bland thing. But if you notice some of the implications, and so this is how it fits in our world today. Japheth, Noah's youngest son, and his descendants are listed in verses two through five. Okay, so you see that? They are largely responsible for founding much of what is now Eastern Europe. So the settlements that they went to would be today's Ukraine, Turkey, Greece, southern Russia, Cyprus, and the Greek islands. So when you read Japheth, you can now, can you picture on a map, this is where he took his people and began to multiply and, and fill the earth. Then you go to Ham, which easily is the most unfortunate name. Well, not totally. Yeah. I think I've shared this before. There's... There's twins named Uz and Buzz. I think they lose. True, true story in the Bible. That's why when you're bored as a junior high kid, you find treasures. But Uz and Buzz are two twins in the Bible. And then there's three that's named at the end of Benjamin's line, and their names are Muppam, Huppam, and Ard. So Ham's in the top ten of worst names. So he's Noah's middle child. His descendants are listed in verses 6 through 19. So he was more fruitful than his little brother. And they're the ancestors of the people of North Africa and a section of the eastern, uh, southern and eastern coasts of the Mediterranean Sea. So the best of my research found out that the Sudan, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Lebanon, and Palestine are probably all Ham's children. And isn't it ironic, can I, I'll just say it, it's Wednesday night, I can get away with murder, okay, because there's less witnesses. But isn't it funny that a guy named Ham would be the father of the people of Canaan? when they couldn't have ham forever. I don't know. I think God's got a brilliant sense of timing. I really do. And then you finally have Shem, who's the firstborn, and his descendants are the dominant nations of the Middle East. Iran, Iraq, Assyria, Saudi Arabia, and in fact, uh, significantly, Eber, uh, which one of his descendants who settled in ancient Mesopotamia, is actually where we get the phrase Hebrew from the people of Eber, E-B-E-R. So the Hebrew people, you'll often hear statements, and I heard it a whole lot uh, over the last week in the political commentary, that they refer to it as the Judeo-Christian work ethic. Mm -hmm. 
right? You hear this all the time, the Judeo-Christian ethic. Do you know, actually, if you want to be biblically accurate with that, it would be the Hebraic American ethic. It's more Hebrew than Jew. And so when you talk about the nation, it's the nation, it's a Hebrew nation, not necessarily the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation was more politicized. The Hebrew nation would have been those that adhered to the Torah and the Ten Commandments. So that's one of those Jeopardy pieces that if you ever make it on and that works for you, I'd like a cut of the deal. All right? Fair? So now we see the three kids, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But what's interesting is this shows us that God had the region of the world to be able to, uh, to take, and all generations come from this. When I got a chance to go to Israel, and I'm going to give a plug for the trip, okay, and there's information on tables right over here if you're interested in this trip to Jerusalem. We'd like to do this every now and then, but because it's expensive, uh, we realize, you know, some people need some time to plan on it. If anybody's interested in going with Michael and I to Jerusalem, we got to go last spring, and when we were there, I just looked at him and I said, we need to do a trip like this for our church. But when I got there, one of the most beautiful things was on the wall of one of the museums was a world globe or a map, and it was shaped like a flower. And so the middle was the Holy Land. And sprouting out from that like petals on a flower were other parts of the world. And the first thing I saw when I saw it was my, my Americanism poured out, and I thought, where are we? Because every map I've seen growing up, who's the center of the globe? Of course we are. And then I went there and I thought, where's the cradle of civilization? It's right in the center of the flower. And what did God do? And it actually is a great depiction of Genesis 10. Where did they all go? Some went northeast, some went northwest, some went south, and the petals of the flower encapsulate how the world grew out from God's promise. It was, a pretty, it was one of those moments that several of us were sitting there talking about it at the museum, and the, we didn't realize that the tour guide, who was, well, it wasn't our tour guide, he was a museum police, if you will, security, was sitting there with the most satisfied smile on his face, and we were done talking, I looked at him, I go, you speak English, and he said, I studied in the States. <laughs> but he just, he just loved to see us realize we're not the, the center of the universe. But it was beautiful to see, and I'd love to show you that and have you see how it really shows how or Noah's children spread out throughout the world and did exactly what God asked them to do. But in Acts chapter 17, I'd like to read it to you. This is what Paul says when he's talking about God's plan. He made one from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed time and boundary of their habitations that they would seek God. God wanted his people to fill his earth. He wanted them to experience it. I, I was the first one, I'm, I, I say this often, but I'm one of four boys, I'm the third of the four, and I was the first one who went to my parents and said, could I have a bedroom down the basement? I remember my mom just, no. And my dad saying the one word I love to hear him say when we disagreed, Marilyn, <laughs> which meant they were going to talk about it. And a few days later, my dad said, if you'll help me go ahead and section off a part and put up some drywall and everything, we'll let you have a bedroom downstairs. And my mom will tell you to this day, it was hard to see us leave the house. I went down the basement. <laughs> but you moms know what she felt, don't you? We, I was spreading out and expanding. And so there's a part of us that wants to keep our, our families together. I have, one of the things I love about this part of the world, I have never experienced that living in northern Indiana and Michigan. People start here, they go away, and then what do they do? Your kids come back and live here. 
They want to live in this community. In Indiana, we said goodbye and we left. And so I, I, I just watched with amazement. People go to college, they get married, they come back here eventually, they want to raise their children in, in CJ or Carthage or Webb City or Joplin. It's a great place to, to raise a family. God's plan was that you go out and experience his world. So you think about the poor people who stopped in Turkey. And you thought, if you'd have just kept going, where, where might have they ended up? Because part of the problem was not believing that God's plan is good for us produces Genesis chapter 11. Are there blessings? When I went down the basement, I kept telling my mom this, believe it or not, at 16 I knew to say this to my mom. I said, Mom, I'm not leaving the house. I'm just making the house bigger. <laughs> well, you know what she did soon after? We built a family room down the basement. <laughs> In other words, women always get what they want. That's <laughs> ultimately what she was after. But here's what I want to tell you, one other thing. And you might take notes on this. This is a freebie. I thought about it a couple days ago and I added to it. It's not in your notes, but there's a couple of things. I want you to write down Acts 8, underneath it, Acts 9, just in a space you can on the side or wherever, and then put in Acts chapter 10. And I want you to see how God's plan is going to work perfectly, whether we see it or not. In Acts chapter 8 is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. You know the story, right? He's an African man who comes to the holy city to worship. And he's sitting by a riverbank, and he's reading Isaiah, and Philip shows up. God, the Holy Spirit led Philip, and Philip appears to him and says, do you know what you're reading? Anybody who's ever read Isaiah, if they're honestly telling the truth, they're going to go, not a clue. He says, give me the scroll, and he unveils the scroll, and he begins to explain Jesus to him. And when he's done, this African man says to him, ask him what question? Here's Here's water, can I be baptized? And Philip baptizes him and the Holy Spirit calls him away. So what's significant about that? To be the Ethiopian, to be an African, he's a descendant of Ham. I want you to see that the promises of Genesis appear in other parts of the Bible, but we Gentiles, we Americans will miss it because genealogy is just something we bust through. Then you go to Acts chapter nine. Saul of Tarsus, on the road to Damascus, blinded by God, converted at the hands of Ananias, or uh, yeah, Ananias baptized him after teaching him, Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus becomes the apostle Paul, he's a descendant of Shem. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have the descendants of Japheth, and this is the Roman soldier Cornelius, and he and his household are baptized into Christ and become followers. So isn't it interesting that the promise in Acts chapter 17 has been actualized in Acts chapter 8? Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10. So when God said, I'm going to create generations that seek me, isn't it funny that in three consecutive chapters in the history of Acts, Luke doesn't point it out, but the scholars have researched it and said, no, the lineage of those three sons of Noah are actually now a part of the kingdom, exactly like God said he would do. What are you supposed to do with that? Realize God's got it figured out when we can't see it. So if you were messed up last night, who's in control? A, a, a political party? Heavens no. God forbid that. The party that's out, are they? No, 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 no. This isn't about man's control, is it? This is about God who's going to get what God wants. He's going to do it the way he does it. Even when you and I can't see it. Now, could there be dark days? There can be dark days. Are we a people of fear? Oh, we better not be. God's, God's slayed bigger dragons than we're facing. And he'll continue to do that. So let's get into chapter 11. Let's talk about the condition of mankind's worldview when we're not lined up with God. 
first, uh, your first line there? Uh, this is what I want you to see. This is the condition of man when they decide that God's ways aren't good enough for them. Number one, the people were unified. The people were unified. Genesis 11.1. 1. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. So is unity a good thing? Is it always a good thing? Now you know the answer from school, right? Nothing is always anything. Right? One of the big answers when I studied communication courses, when you talk about group dynamics, uh, the answer is always it depends. So my students at Great Lakes Christian College used to laugh when I would say such and such, and they'd say, it depends, and roll their eyes, because it does. Everything is mostly conditional. So you have unity is a good thing. Yep. Unless you have three high school boys standing on a corner after midnight. Is their unity a good thing? No. It depends who's in the crowd. But it says here in verse one, the whole, they had one language and a common speech. Does the ability to communicate matter? Oh, it absolutely does. When try to communicate with a teenage boy and you're a female 30 years and older. Does communication matter? I tell my boys all the time. They're like, why is mom always on me? Because you don't communicate. And they're like, but you understand me. I know, we're broken people. <laughs> we have that in common. The female's a better version of all of us. So when mom asks you a question, answer it. I have taught my boys, though, when she gets to the third question, they are allowed to go, which one do you want me to answer? And that normally slows the train down. So use that with your kids if it's helpful. And then I leave the room when they say it because, you know, it could all break loose right there. So. <laughs> but I love when they go, mom, you just asked me nine questions. Which one do you want? It's like, Uh, parenting number two the people were comfortable the people were comfortable verse two as men moved eastward they found a plain in Shinar and settled there some of your Bibles will say they dwelt there which is an interesting Hebrew word which actually means they liked what they saw and they were done okay they were comfortable From the time that Noah and his family had landed on the mountaintop and the water receded, they were nomadic. So you know what that means. They moved around like the American Indians would have in the States. They would summer up north and they would winter down south and they migrated not based on weather, which is a flawed concept. The weather was helpful, but how did they migrate here in the United States? Food source. So when the fall came and the crops went down, they went where the crops were growing, which would have been the southwest or the deep south. So they migrated into regions that they provided. God moved his people very similarly based on weather patterns, but primarily based on water and food. So they were nomadic. And what we need to note here is because they were nomadic to that spot, all of a sudden they found the plains of Shinar, and what did they do? Well, the plains of Shinar are uh, bordered by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. So good topsoil, farmers? the best. Would there be animal supply there as well as produce? Absolutely. They stopped and they went, we're done. And they stayed. Was this an act of disobedience? It depends. Thank you. We're playing the game tonight. I like it. Yeah, it depends on their motivation. Let's look at the third point. We'll build a case here. The people were satisfied. Your third blank is they were satisfied. And then if you want to put in parenthetically, they were satisfied with themselves. This is where being comfortable can become 
uh, disobedience. Because I'm not suggesting that God wants you uncomfortable, but sometimes he does. A faith ought to stretch you beyond what you're comfortable with. If you would take a survey in the American church today, how many of us in the last 50 days have shared our faith with somebody else who's not a believer? Do you know what the response, you guys are all showing shame. People are, (laughs) why do we struggle with that? It makes us uncomfortable. And part of it is you're not uncomfortable telling them where your favorite pizza place is. You're, you're not uncomfortable telling them that, you know, the movie or the television show This Is Us is amazing. You tell everybody, you watching that? You need to watch it. Why do I need to watch it? Here's why you need to watch it. We have no problem sharing our faith. It's just Satan has gotten into our world where sharing things like politics and power and religion are those things that make us what? Really uncomfortable. But they became satisfied. Verse three, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Is that a big deal? Anybody? Steve, you're an engineer. What's the big deal? Tar is going to Pardon? Tar will Tar Okay. When you go to the promised land one day and I enter Jerusalem... If you would travel with us, I'll tell you what, what's most of it made out of? Stone. You know, it's still standing thousands of years after it was put up. But they decided, look, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they decided to go by their own man-made process over God-made provisions. And I know none of us have ever done that, have we? We're going to better God's methods by doing it our way. Fourth, the people wanted to build a monument. They said, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So is the, is the issue with the building materials? No, it's why they built their building. Why didn't they use a stone building? Oh, this would be a good pop quiz question. You know, in the old days, take out a piece of paper, number one to ten. Pardon? It, t- it could have taken too long. That's fair. You can't get a stone that high. Maybe they couldn't get the stones that high, although the Egyptians have yeah, figured out ways. That's like every time America thinks it's great, we need to go look at the Aztec buildings and think they did that without hydraulics. That's phenomenal. They all died doing it, but anyway, they built an amazing building <laughs> that we can still go see. See, we're lazy. That's why we're creative. But why does the kind of building matter in the story? Look at verse 4 one more time. There's your cue, or clue rather. Everybody had stone buildings. We're going to show people how we built. So they were doing something that said, look at us. So the, the type of material was an indication of pride. Because let us build ourselves a city that reached the heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Now you can stop right there if you pay attention to not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. What is that called? Disobedience. They said, we did enough of what God said to be done. We're going to build a tower here that reaches to heaven because we're, we don't want to be scattered all over the earth, which was in direct defiance of God who gave them the earth. And they hadn't found the Bahamas they hadn't found South Florida. 
They hadn't found the beauty of the mountains and the pastures. They hadn't found the, the heartland. They hadn't found any of those things. But they decided, which is what sin is if you go back a few weeks ago, I know better than God about this. So there we have that moment. From the beginning of the deception of the garden, replacing God with ourselves has been man's constant struggle. So in Genesis chapter 12, it's kind of interesting that we'll see this, and you won't remember this in January, so I'll give it to you now and let Michael beat it up when he gets there. In Genesis 12, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make you a great name, and you will be a blessing. And their response was, Yeah, we're good. Now, let me moralize this, because this is what preachers do, right? Which you all love. How many times have we done that with God's best? Now, I'm good. But I want to bless you in a way I can't bless you if you stay where you're at. Now, I'm good. I love the plains of Shinar. Look at the rivers. I got everything I need right here. And this is the issue that was faced in Genesis 11. Now, we're talking about just probably 350 years after the flood. Now, you think back in time, 350 years, where does that put us on the calendar? 1600s? Even, yeah, mid-1600s? Do we know the history of that time and that place? Do we still talk about maybe lessons learned? No, because we forget. The only generation that seems to matter to the current generation is their generation. That's why it's been said, any, anybody who doesn't look back at history is going to be fated to repeat it. If we don't learn the lessons of history, the flood wasn't enough that 300 and some years later, the people decided, we just, we'll do it our way, and it'll work. So they begin to build a tower, verses 5 and 6. But the Lord came down to see the city <laughs> and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Let's pause for a moment and just have a real discussion that I think churches might be scared to have. Is God scared of humans here? I mean, take a peek. Spend a moment on verses 5 and 6. Do you understand that a lot of people read this and think God's scared of them? So he's going to punish them because he's scared they might get to his level. Do you see it? And it's okay to, because you can see it. Isn't it a reasonable deduction from the text? So if you want to say that God's not intimidated by man or God did not do what he's about to do because he was threatened by them, then what is he saying? Okay, he may be just be teaching them a lesson about disobedience, but then why is he worried about what they plan to do? If he can stop them from doing it, why doesn't he just punish them to stop them? What about uh, dependency on him? Okay, they're not showing a dependency on him? Their motivation. Why are they doing it? Because they want to be like him, but there's only one he. Okay. They're doing it out of jealousy and pride, not out of love. Is God threatened? And let me tell you, it's a trick question. What's the answer? Yes and no. Is there anything we do that threatens God? Remember I started intentionally tonight by saying God doesn't need us for a single thing. So can we threaten God's person? Can we threaten his presence? Can we threaten his power? Absolutely not. But can he be threatened by us? Pardon? Rebellion? Yeah. 
Your child runs away from you in a crowd. Are you threatened? I hope so. Some of you are going, nope, see ya. (laughs) We need to talk. But if you see a two or three-year-old toddling away from you in a crowded area and your heart doesn't skip a beat because you know what could happen to them if they get too far away, are you threatened? Absolutely. Love is threatened by the safety issues of people we care about. Why was God threatened by the rebellion? Because he knew what they were going to do to themselves if they kept going. It wasn't what they were going to do to him. So he looks down and he says, there's nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. He's not threatened that they'll build a tower and get into his backyard. Not threatened that they're going to compromise him in any way. What he's threatened by is, if I let them continue to go in rebellion, I'm going to have to flood again. Make sense? But critics read this passage and say, see, God's not all that because he stopped them for fear that they might get too far. And I agree with them because getting too far isn't what they suspect. It's what we know. Why did he send Jesus? Sent Jesus to help us overcome how far we'd gotten away, to bring us back. So you have that moment in verses six. Now let's go to seven and eight. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from, excuse me, scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. Now there's some debate, which we'll talk about here in a minute. There's some debate as to why they were building and what they were building. But what did God choose to do? Remember, I started by saying they were unified. So what's the one thing that he knew would scatter them throughout the earth? Yeah, if they couldn't understand each other. But obviously, the way they spread themselves out, they broke into groups that could. Which is really interesting that this is kind of the anti-day of Pentecost, isn't it? On this day, he scattered them by different languages. On the day of Pentecost, the apostles, these unlearned men who they thought had been drinking all morning, one guy breaks out into speaking French. The other guy's speaking Dutch. I'm making this up, you know. Another guy breaks in, he's speaking fluent Spanish who never learned it. And the people that speak Spanish are like, hey, and they just gather around that apostle. Well, why would God do something like that? Well, if you factor out, and I'm going to keep saying this, you're going to think I'm pitching a commercial, but we're going to be able to take you to the steps that actually existed the day that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the steps he stood on and preached. And when you're there, if you don't tear up or get goosebumps, we're going to check you for a pulse. I'm standing on the actual steps that Peter would have preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on the house and the crowd began to gather. And you think about it. Why would God do that? Well, if there's over 3,000 men that accepted the Lord that day and their families, that meant there's probably a crowd of six or 7,000 out there that day. No amphitheater and no PA system. I worry about being able to speak 60 feet back to those of you sitting back to see if Steve, I can keep Steve awake back there and he's listening to me. He's not. But anyway, so we look at this and when we're having this conversation, could you imagine 6,000 people in an open air environment with the crowd on the day of Pentecost? God's pretty smart, isn't he? How does he use language? He's going to break them into little churches and they're going to hear the message of the gospel spoken in the tongue, their native tongue. God reverses on the day of Pentecost what happened at the Tower of Babel. Why? Because he had to come down to the Tower of Babel to see what they were doing. It's a bit of a mocking statement. 
Then they all come down, including the Holy Spirit, and confuse the language so that they would actually, with all the discomfort of the language, they would be blessed by going out into all the world and fulfilling their purpose. On the day of Pentecost, he takes all those nations, he brings them together, he unites them in their own separate tongue because God knew all the languages and they didn't. So he scatters them and they stopped building the city. So let me ask you another one of these trick questions that you won't answer anyway. In verse eight, was stopping the building of the city the objective? Was the city in and of itself evil? Was the tower the wrong thing? Now the tower was the evidence of the rebellion. I wonder where that tower was and how long it lasted and was it a moral lesson for everybody who walked by? Because you find that throughout scripture. There are things, like remember when they crossed through the Jordan River into the promised land, what did they do? They went and got 12 stones from the other side. They got 12 stones from the riverbed. They took the 12 stones from the riverbed. It's kind of a military duty, right? Dig that ditch. Now what? Fill it back up. So they took the 12 stones out of the riverbed and they built a monument on the other side. And then they took 12 stones from the other side and they put them down in the riverbed. And remember why they did that? So when your children ask this question, mommy and daddy, why are those rocks there? You can say the Lord's faithfulness got us across the river. So do you see how monuments work? Monuments remind us, how many have ever been to the Vietnam Monument in D.C.? I want to go one day. I hear it's breathtaking. And and once again, they told me, if you don't sob at that place, you have no clue about history. We've all been to places. I've walked Gettysburg and been to Lookout Mountain. You see the little army guys they have stationed. You just think how primitive those fields were and how they fought. And we keep monuments. When you go over to the Holy Lands, they do monuments different than they do it. Here, we have open fields and we have state parks and you pay admission. You have tour guides that dress like it. There, to protect land, they built churches on top of sacred places. So when you go visit a sacred place, you walk in and you're standing in a place of worship that protects the holy place. It's just different, but it's pretty powerful. So when you walk in, they'll tell you, this church was built on this date over the site where Jesus did this, or Muhammad did this. And so the monuments are all over the Holy Land. They exist today. So I've always wondered deep inside, how long did the Tower of Babel, how high did they get? And what was it built like? And does it still exist? Would anybody have a clue? Which leads you to, because God, uh, I don't want to use the word fear, that's unfair, God has a strong aversion to holy relics, right? Where's the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it's in a, we obviously know Indiana Jones found it and it's in a box somewhere in Washington, D.C. Why are we never going to find, I mean, just answer yourself the question, why are we never going to find the Ark of the Covenant? We would worship it. It's our nature. I called three people in South Bend, Indiana the morning after the greatest day, well, third greatest day of my life. And I called my brother Scott and I said, would you do me a favor? And I said, what? I said, get me a Chicago Tribune. I want the Chicago Tribune the day after the Cubs finally won this thing. He called me back and he said, I've been looking for them. He started at 6, 10 in the morning and at 9 o'clock they couldn't find one in South Bend. Everybody had my idea. And he's like, what are you going to do with it? I said, you know exactly what I'm going to do with it. That front page is going under glass in my office framed. And he goes, really? And I go, yeah. Isn't it our nature to take sacred moments and try to capture them with relics? So when you travel, do you ever buy a souvenir that you know you wouldn't buy in the States? 
You ever bought Mickey Mouse ears? Why? Did you ever wear them after you left Florida? No, but why did you buy them in the moment? Because our kids will think this is wonderful. Where are they now? Relics mean something for a season, but they normally mean something to us. I have a shelf in my office. I can show you little tiny things. Michael uh, went in the Dead Sea. There was, there's a statute about me taking my shirt off in public, so I couldn't go in the Dead Sea when we were over there. Michael floated like a cigarette butt. He doesn't weigh anything anyway. He just floated there, and he came up with a handful. He reached down. He pulled out a chunk of salt that I have in my office. And it's like, and you'd go, why would you have salt in your office? You, you don't know. But for me, it's like, I was in the Dead Sea. And this is a a relic. We are born to worship. Have you noticed? Was stopping the building the objective? No, it was get them to understand the blessings of obedience. And so this is what we have. Number five, the people gained what they asked for. The people gained what they asked for. Genesis 11, 9. This is why they call it Babel. We're probably not pronouncing that well in English. That doesn't mean like, you know, this kind of Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. He confused them. So it was a monument, right? Let's review. Just quickly, why did they want to build it again? To make a name for themselves. Did they? Absolutely. Was it the name they thought they'd make for themselves? No. Did they make a name for themselves? So God fulfilled their wishes. It's going to be a monument to our pride, to our arrogance, to our lack of trust. So let's go to the second point tonight, the condition of God's glory and grace. You might remember that a couple years ago we did a Christmas series and we actually used it in the, in the Revelation series as well. We read some sections at the end of the sermon from the Children's Storybook Bible. Uh, I don't know if you remember. We, we have them in our resource center. It's a wonderful thing to read to your kids at night. Just very well, I think doctrinally solid too. But I love what they say about the Tower of Babel in the Children's Storybook Bible. Quoting, You see, God knew however high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. So what God stifled was their thought that they could get to God. When we now know that the reason God stifled that is because he had to come to us. So when you study Genesis chapters 1 through 11 to find your theology, please understand the incarnation is alluded to in Genesis 11. So I make fun of the fact that God had to come down. They wanted to build a tower to get to God and God's like, I can't quite see what they're doing. So he comes down and says, oh, really? That's close. What he's actually showing them is, unless God came to us, we could never get to him. So you can even find the incarnation in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So if you look, it says in Genesis 1.28 that God blessed them. At least eight times in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, it says, I have given. So there's a truth that we have to keep in front of our worldview, that when God gives us commands and God gives us warnings, he is giving us blessing. So instead of seeing the commands of God as limiting, the commands of God are actually a blessing. So when my mom saw my brother Scott fishing out a piece of burnt toast with a fork, she lost her mind. 
she screamed and yelled, we ought to know better. My dad saw my brother Scott putting a fork in the toaster. He sat back with his coffee and smiled. Because <laughs> my dad knew he wasn't going to die, but he'd remember it. And so sometimes God lets us walk into error, and sometimes God intercedes into our error. But every time God gives us a command and a curse, he's actually blessing us. So, as a parent, all joking aside, sometimes you bless your children and they get mad. Sometimes you bless your children and they pout for 10 days and they think they're going to get even by not talking to you. Is blessing them worth it? Yeah. So, <laughs> that was a trick question, I guess. <laughs> Some of you are like, it depends which kid. Okay, fair enough. But at the end of the day, I remember my parents saying this to us over and over and I used to roll my eyes at them. We're not here for you to like us. My parents said all the time, we don't care if you like us. We're right. And they were every single time. But I didn't like it. I didn't like being blessed sometimes or being told I couldn't. But we need in our worldview to understand that when God says don't do this, it's not because he doesn't want us to have a good time. He says don't do it because he knows better about it than we do anything. So I'd like to read it. Is it in your notes, Psalm 8, 5 through 8? Yes. Okay. Let's talk then about how God is giving and what our role is from our worldview. Oh, okay. So the text isn't written out? Well, what was I thinking? All right. So here's what it says. If you want to turn to it, I'll give you time. Psalm 8, 5 through 8. Psalm 8, 5 through 8. God made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. If we don't balance, and I'll say, well, just let me talk about myself here for a second. If I don't balance that no creation has been treated as well as me, I can become resentful every time God tells me no. But when I realize how blessed I've been, how good God's been to me when I haven't earned it, then I can trust his prohibitions as much as I trust his rewards. Psalm 8 gives us perspective of who we are. That's why we live in a culture, and I talk about this, I have the privilege, I don't know why they ask me, I really don't, but as long as they do, I'm going to keep saying yes. When I get a chance to speak to high school girls at a CIY move. I love nothing more in a safe way to tell young ladies, don't you dare let the world tell you that how you dress and how you show off your anatomy is your definition. Because what is the culture telling them? Your anatomy gets you attention. And that's such a, such a shame. And then I, I love telling the guys, I have more fun with this. You probably know my personality or lack of one right now. But I love looking at the guys and saying, as a Christian man, stop it. You tell those girls they're beautiful in their worst moments because they are, not because they're dressed alike and they caught you or they caught your attention out of the corner of their eye. That you as brothers in Christ need to look at them and honor them for who they are because what is the world doing? It's, it's making us all commodities, right? Would you agree? That our value is in how useful we are to everybody else. If you make a lot of money, you must be somebody. If you're attractive, you must be somebody. If you have great possessions, you must be somebody. And isn't that the lie of Satan? That who you are in the eyes of God is not enough. 
And all of us have had periods of our life, haven't we? I, I mean, I, I think so. That all of us have periods of our life where we have allowed the world to define us. And because of that, God becomes harsh and distant. But when we're defined by his love, then even his prohibitions become blessing. Or we say, no, I'm, I'm not my anatomy. I'm not my income. I'm not my status. I'm exactly who I am because Jesus Christ on the cross identifies me and gives me presence. So God has given us a place in glory and it's important that we look in this chapter to find out that part of our discovery is how does the glory of God coincide in us? So let's talk about three things as we kind of head toward conclusion here. Let's talk about the danger of our pride. Let's just go back and review a little bit, make a couple of points, and then we'll be finished. Genesis eleven four. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So in Genesis 1, God said, be fruitful and multiply, increase, fill the earth. After the flood, be fruitful, multiply, increase, fill the earth. He's not asked us to make a place for ourselves. He's asked us to pursue the place he's made for us. You can apply that physically. I know you can definitely apply it spiritually. He's not asked us to make a place for ourselves. He's asked us to accept the place he's made for us. Which is why that the old spiritual says, this is not my home, I'm just passing through, right? I'm just a, a wandering stranger. And we look at that and we think it's a little hokey, it's a little uh, homespun, a little too country for us sophisticated people. But at the end of the days, if you fall in love with the world, do you remember what John wrote in his first, second, and third John? To be in love with the world is to be an enemy of who? Of God. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy a good steak, a good ball game, round of golf, a nice walk outdoors. No, those are all things God gave us. But when they become the priority over a relationship with God, we've compromised ourselves, haven't we? And we have become in love with culture. As a pastor, I've, you know, this isn't just anecdotal, like I'm making this up to make a point. Number of times in my life, I would bet at least a dozen different times, a Christian person who's invested in the kingdom and been a part of God's uh, journey their whole life, has met death and been scared to death without certainty where they were going. And I look at that and I don't feel bad for them. I just think, you've never really tasted the faithfulness of the Lord. Now, should death scare us? Yeah, I don't want to die. I, I don't even joke about it. I'm going to be the worst dyer there ever was. I'm not going to be all tough like John Wayne and say, oh, just, I'm fine. No, I'm going to make you pay. It's going to be horrendous <laughs> because I love being alive. I love my family. I love the world the Lord's given us. I, I love the blessings of it. And I know he's got something better for me. I just have never tasted that before. So I don't want to die, but I know when I die that God's faithful. And so the, the whole key behind this is when God tells us to do something, that are we trying to draw attention to ourselves or are we doing what God asks us to do because we know his glory will be enough for us? Genesis eleven five. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the sons were building. God has to lower his glory to get in on ours. So it, it's just one of those things. For God has to say, I have to become the form of a man 
and dwell among you at great cost to myself to be able to relate to you. So we have to remember who we are in Christ and what God is doing with that for us. Second thing, God's glorious response to pride. Verses six through eight. The Lord said, is as if as one people speaking the same language they begun to do this and nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building their city. Humanity's tendency towards self-seeking is here and you have to see yourself in this story. So let me offend every single one of us. I'll start with myself. It probably was a good idea Everybody probably agreed to it. Everybody helped build it. Everybody sacrificed for it. But God never asked for it. So we have to ask ourselves, are we doing what God's asked us to do? I know you tire of these, but they all I've got. I remember in sixth grade, my parents leaving for a weekend. On the refrigerator every morning was a Mark list, Scott list, and a Steve list. Now, as a kid, it seemed like the list was a mile long. I look back on it now. Take the trash to the curb. It was so hard. But I was raised by a parents who every day you had chores. It, it earns you your right to eat. And they went away for a weekend, and so there were three things on everybody's list. The third thing on everybody's list, and I remember this distinctly, and, and uh, <laughs> explain me, I guess. The bottom thing was that the house needed to be picked up. It was a, just a simple thing, which meant no shoes, no underwear, dishes cleaned. So when mom came home from this trip with my dad that weekend, that the house needed to be picked, we were all responsible for it. So what had happened was they came home and we had done extra things. We had uh, changed our bedroom. <laughs> right? We did. We moved the beds around. We all moved into one room. We built the bunk beds back up. We, we did all these cool things that we thought they would love. You know where the story's going already, right? <laughs> In the midst of doing all the things we wanted to do for mom and dad, because we were, it was all good. How many of the nine things on the list got done? Two. Both on Steve's. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he'd live with them longer. He knew what was coming. But he did two of the three things. When mom and dad came in, we knew instantly that we had done a lot of neat things. We hadn't done what they asked us to do. And I remember to this day, I was in sixth grade, so I'm exactly Braden's age, which makes me laugh now. I saw the look of disappointment, and I to this day hadn't forgotten that. All they asked us to do were the very simple things. Make sure the trash goes out. Make sure the dog's stuff is picked up in the backyard and thrown back in the garden to make sure that the house was picked up so when mom came in, she didn't have more work to do. They came in from this little vacation they got to take on a weekend, which was unusual, and mom had to pick up the house. This is when my dad walked in. He saw the list, and this is how cool my dad is. Okay, Some of you probably think my dad's psychotic, but I love that guy. <laughs> he walked in. It was a beautiful summer afternoon, and we were watching cartoons in the middle of the day. And my father walked in, pulled out his pocket knife, unplugged the television, cut off the plug to the television, put it in his pocket, and left the house. (laughs) And that TV didn't work. There's no electricity. It didn't work for two weeks. One day we came home from school, and the TV was working. And we thought, (laughs) we survived. Found out mom was missing her soap operas, and she wore them down. (laughs) 
So that television, until they got rid of it, true story, was taped back together. My dad just re-split the, the plug, taped it with electrical tape and plugged it in the wall so mom could watch, I don't know, Love is a Many Splendored Thing or whatever she was watching. <laughs> Some of you know that one. Yeah, and so anyway, it was like in that moment, I, that was an indelible moment. I still pick on my dad about it. And he's like, we didn't cut that plug off. And we're all like, oh, oh man, we were all standing right there. It was the, it was the coolest thing I ever seen. I and mean, he just like, poof, put it in his pocket and left. And I thought, well, it, beat, it sure beat killing all of us. But, but at the end of the day, I've never forgotten that. So now I keep saying the same thing to my boys. Your mom doesn't ask you to do very much. So when she asks you to do one thing, kill that thing. Do it really, really well. Why? Because as a kid... I'll never forget my mom having to work when she should have come home relaxed and the house should have been just the way she wanted it and you guys get it. What is the moral of this story? God should have come down to every one of us and said, I've had it. But what did he do? He sent Jesus to take the beating that we deserved. The cross shows up in every text. You don't have to stretch the soup very thin. You just have to find Jesus in the story. So if you look at it, God's glorious response to our pride. He sent Jesus down to take this for us. There's something about the Tower of Babel that God, confusing our language, gave us a taste, a small taste of the destruction our sin does. Because you look now, having just been to Japan last week uh, to visit our church plant in Osaka and a new one that's going to open in December in Kobe, just being over there, one of the most discouraging things is to be in this beautiful city. It just reminds me so much of Chicago. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's clean. It's safe. People don't draw attention to themselves. It's just so cool. It's like an introvert's dream. And being in this place, there were so many people I wanted to visit with, but I couldn't. Why? Because I don't speak Japanese. And I thought, and it hit me knowing I was going to teach on this when I got back. It just hit me. The Tower of Babel resounds even today that the Christian brothers and sisters in Japan, we have to have someone interpreting. And whenever someone's interpreting for you, it's okay, but it's not the same. It's not spontaneous. It's not full of personality. You're trying to uh, sculpt your questions down to very simplistic terms. And it's almost like two children talking about deep ideas. And I thought, Tower of Babel still affects us today. Uh, The Greers go over. Ethan and Audrey, they spend... 18 months studying the Japanese language, 18 months before they can interact and have good community. And they're still the wrong color, the wrong shape, and the language is broken. There's a consequence to our rebellion that affects us all the time. So let's do the third and final thing. Restoring the gift of glory in our Father. Genesis 11.9. The Lord confused their language, and from there the Lord scattered them. So how do the consequences bring out the glory of God? Well, I want you to notice that the Tower of Babel would become the location of what great city in the Old Testament? Babylon. And when you study the word Babylon throughout the Bible, it's used over 200 times. Sometimes it actually refers to the city of Babylon. But the majority of the time it refers to what? the representative city Babylon. And what does the representative city of Babylon mean biblically, especially in the book of Revelation? Some of you have read ahead to the scriptures I have down there. Just take a peek at them. What does it represent? New York, L.A., Vegas, Rome, Paris, 
Moscow, I go on all day. Major metropolitan areas, are they God-fearing or God-less? Can you imagine? Now I'm gonna, let me pick on some of you that are 70 years and older. Anybody wanna confess to that? Nobody? 65 and older? Do you have an AAP card or AARP card? Raise your hand. Could you imagine 30 years ago on television that a what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas commercial would have played? Not a chance. But right now, how many of us cringe when commercials come on and children are nearby a television? I am embarrassed the things I've had to explain to my 12-year-old. And he's not naive. He doesn't walk around dreaming of puppies and butterflies and suckers. He's a little boy. But when he asks me question after commercials and he picks up the symbolism, there's sometimes I'm just like, why do I even have a television? The world is in. Babylon's words are being spread in every possible way. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 18, her sins are heaped as high as heaven. That's an interesting word choice, isn't it? I need you to see this. If you didn't get it in the shadow series, or excuse me, if you did get it, what we're trying to do in the shadow series, you're going to roll your eyes. We get it. But I want you to see, isn't it funny that John on the Isle of Patmos would use language that echoes Genesis? He said that their sins are as high as heaven as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, comfortable, getting what they wanted. In her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Alas, your great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. But what's fascinating to me is the book of Revelation says God's gonna come down one more time to the same location as the tower, to a people that are trying to make a name for themselves, and what will he do? Scatter them. So when I look at this, I'm like, this is not coincidence that the Bible is so well written. And some people say, well, it was written a long time ago and they made it fit. Yeah, we're talking about written, the last part of it was written almost 2,000 years ago. Do we want to give credit to the authors that wrote this over, covered over 50 or 4,000 years of history? written over 1,500 years from beginning to end by 40 different authors in three different languages, and you want to tell me they just happen to fit the pieces together. Remember when, um, I can't think of her name offhand, who can help me, who wrote Gone with the Wind? Margaret Mitchell. Margaret Mitchell, thank you. Margaret Mitchell wrote that classic novel in 1936, 35 or 36. It was made into a movie in 1939. And did you remember before her life ended, she started to write the sequel to it and she didn't finish it. And one of her nieces tried to finish the book and it was panned. It's not anywhere close to the original. They couldn't do it in a 40-year span. So let me back up and say, 40 different authors, three different languages, covering 1,500 years of authorship, covering 4,000 years of history, and I'm showing you in Revelation that John, who never met the authors of Genesis, he heard Jesus say a reference to the Tower of Babylon or the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So what does the breath of his mouth mean? Words. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable for, and it goes on and on. So words. Why would God confuse our words? Words have power. Words speak life. Tell someone you love them with sincerity and does it change them? 
Tell someone you hate them with words. Does it change them? We live in a world where we say, well, words don't matter that much. Oh, my goodness. Look at the development of a child. I know some school teachers in here. You walk up to a child who's struggling in a grade and you, and you say things to them like, you're fine. You and I are going to get this. I've had a son come home. I don't know if he can't do math or he won't do math. I'm suspicious it's the latter. But he'll come home and he'll go, I can't. And I go, you know what? You and I can. He's like, okay. And I just think, I'm not helping him at all. It's his homework. But when he knows I'm going to sit at the table with him and not let him quit and believe in him, words matter. Words matter more than picking up the pencil and helping him do the project. And what does it say that God's going to do? Out of the breath of his mouth, he will destroy those that oppose him and he will claim those that exalt him. Let's jump down to Revelation 7. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne. Do you see it? You guys aren't, I know you see it. All nations, tribes, people, and languages, he forced them out, he draws them back in. And they're blessed for it. Isaiah 9, 6, in fact, uh, I don't have time to do it tonight, but I actually read an article, ah, it's probably 10 years ago now, I read an article talking about the different food sources, and of course for me that's of interest, but the different food sources that the world discovered by following God's design and going into all the world. Now, did they import and export? Not as much as we do, but aren't you grateful that there were plants in some regions of the world that we would never experience if people hadn't done what God said to enjoy all his earth? I am the pineapple for one. Because you're, I, I'm, if I understand correctly, pineapples are not indigenous to the United States. They're grown all over the place in the United States now, but where are they best grown? Yeah. South. So you go down to Cuba and places like this, and Hawaii and the Southern Hemisphere, and toward the Southern Hemisphere, and all of a sudden things grow. So God knew that there was a blessing in us pursuing this. Isaiah 6, 9, 6 brings us all the way back. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, I told you there were some theories why they built a tower, and one of the most common theories in the ancient of days was that they built the Tower of Babel so all the world would see it and would know where to come to get instruction. Government. Power. So I think it's really funny that we didn't know this, but we'd be having this discussion the day after election day. So the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So that's what you have and what we learn. Now, if you come back next week, we're going to walk through each week pulling out what is a meaningful piece of theology we learn in Genesis, where do we find it elsewhere in the Bible, and what's the implications to every single one of us. Got it? All right, we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.